Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. To listen without ads, head over to patreon.com slash right and wrong. Ooh, a spicy question. I <laughs> because love the it. writing is sort of everything, right? Like you kind of can fix plot holes, but if the yeah. writing so some there. readers love that and some readers are like, but I wanted more of this. So it's kind of <laughs> it's kind of a gamble. Hello and welcome back to the Right and Wrong podcast. On today's episode, I am joined by a writer of both fiction and non-fiction, uh, an acclaimed essayist and short fiction author, uh, deputy editor of a literary magazine, off assignment, and author of the brand new novel River East, River West. It's Aubrey Lescure. Hello, welcome. Hi, Jamie. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Oh, you're so welcome. Thanks for coming on. Let's Let's start with the the novel, um, new and exciting, uh, River East, River West, which is already out in the US, will be out in the UK on the 25th of January. Tell us a little bit about it. River East, River West is my debut novel. It's a coming of age story as well as a family drama and social novel set entirely in China. And it follows a biracial teenage girl called Alva growing up in Shanghai around 2007, 2008, as well as her Chinese stepfather, Lu Feng, a wealthy businessman and landlord who her mother marries out of the blue. Um, so the three of them have all moved in together in this middle-class neighborhood in Pudongan district in Shanghai and are figuring out a, a tricky cohabitation. And Lu Feng is actually my novel's secondary uh, narrator. So we go back in time to the 1980s uh, in a city in northern China called Qingdao, and uh, we peel back the, the layers of history and, and kind of personal, personal drama that um, he's experienced as a young man when he first meets a young foreign woman named Sloan, who came into China as a foreign teacher. Yeah, well, it's it's a wonderful um, setup, very interesting locations and kind of um, ex- an exploration of sort of identity and race and uh, finding one's place in the world. We often see, and, and especially I think with debut novels, is you'll see authors reflected in their own work. But in this case, um, it, it's difficult not to see like a lot of similarities between you and um, Alva, specifically one of your protagonists. How much of your own life and experience is like part of the characters and the, and the stories in this? So going into novel writing, I always knew that I was going to stay pretty close to my lived experiences um, in, in so far as the social observations and realism truths go. So my own background is that I'm half French and half Chinese, and I grew up with a primarily my French expat mother in China until I was 16 and lived in northern China and Shanghai, attended Chinese public schools, 
was very close. That was my Chinese family on my dad's side. And it was only my last uh, two years of school in China that I attended an international school in Shanghai and was fully immersed in the world of expats and international schools. And um, all of that really uh, was a shock to me at the time in terms of expat attitudes and behaviors. I mean, I, I of course, you know, knew of foreigners uh, who lived in Shanghai and would, you know, attend some events, but it wasn't until going to school amongst expat teens that I witnessed a lot of, let's say, indifference and sometimes even condescension they had towards the Chinese society around them. So I always knew I wanted to write something that captured the heart of those socioeconomic and racial dynamics. Um, and I think that part of the novel is is very true, it's very real, it's based on dynamics I've observed um, or experienced myself. But I'm, I'm happy to report that in terms of plot points, <laughs> definitely not everything happened to me. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of dark things do happen in this book. Um, and I think that's something I learned along the way of writing and revising this novel that um, I, I had to play with characters, I had to play with plot, sometimes um, really interesting things that might happen because you have a combination of plot ingredients that didn't happen to you in real life. It would almost be a crime not to use them in a novel to make it yeah. more interesting. Um, so yeah, that's a bit of the where the truth lies in this book. Okay, okay. So there's a sort of underlying authenticity to it where... It's, it is something that you lived and experienced, but obviously you've kind of changed. It, it's a sort of alternate version or from outside looking in. Like obviously, you're talking about some a, a made-up character experiencing these things. I think what helped me really improve the book was at some point uh, acknowledging and really forcing myself to think of the characters as characters and, mm -hmm. and Alba, um, you know, not as myself, even though it's sometimes the name I use on Ubers and in Starbucks. But <laughs> that aside, no, it's uh, all jokes aside, it it truly helped um, the, the writing on a very granular level even to not think of Alva as just a stand-in for myself because they her early chapters had a kind of, um, had a lot of problems with pacing and interiority just basically me being too self-indulgent because it's you know it, it felt like too highly autobiographical or stream of consciousness and once I decided to make that severance this character isn't me I need to treat her like you know an actual novel character and need to keep things moving along um I think the pacing of the writing itself improved a lot okay that's interesting so was it sometimes before you kind of made that decision, were you sort of writing and subconsciously you were just kind of projecting yourself in like your own very like lived experience into this? Yeah. And I think in terms of um, what I mentioned about the stream of consciousness, you know, when I was, uh, well, five or six years younger and writing this novel as a, mm -hmm. as a very, very newcomer to fiction, um, you know, I was still very um under um under the hold of all the works i admired in university of my favorite writers and there was a lot of kind of high literary stream of consciousness style and i, I would have alba chapters that would have you know five or six pages that were just like thoughts and memories 
occurring in her head while no, you know, real action or plot was happening on, on the page. Yeah. Um, and I think that was a kind of indulgence that was both, you know, a combination of being a young writer and, and a fan of um, all these literary traditions and also a lack of distancing between um, my own voice and, and the narrative voice of the character in the book. Okay, right. So it sounds like you, you really went on a sort of um, personal journey almost with this as like a writer to, to kind of find the place where you kind of nailed that narrative. Did you have a similar experience or was it very different writing the other protagonist? Writing the other protagonist, Yu Fang, who's a middle-aged Chinese man and definitely not, <laughs> not, not me, um, was, <laughs> it was actually an incredibly refreshing experience. Um, and mm -hmm. he's a point of view character, a narrator that I added halfway through working on the novel. So initially I had a full manuscript that pretty much only followed Alva as a main character. And I was attending a year-long writing workshop class in Boston, where I live, um, where 10 other, I mean, nine other classmates read your novel manuscripts twice over and workshop it. And one of the most crucial pieces of feedback I got the first time around is why, why are we not hearing from Lu Fang? He seems to be the beating heart of the novel in so many ways. And so for that whole entire summer, I set out writing um, a narrative only from his point of view. And because it was so fictional and because I was so distant from him and because it took place in the 1980s, uh, the 90s and 2000s, his, his timeline kind of leaps from decade to decade as it parallels mm -hmm. China's development. That, that forced me to really come to it as a fiction writer. You know, I would be like, okay, when we check in with Lu Fang in the 2000s, these are kind of the big climactic things that need to happen. And I almost treated, you know, every, every uh, section narrated by him as a short story uh, because it was so contained within decade-spanning leapfrogging um, moments. And that really helped me grow as a writer because I saw how I could tell one character's story in this very kind of intentional, more orchestrated, um, more controlled way. And in contrast, the Alba sections were kind of, as I said, like sprawling and, and highly interior and less plot driven. So having his timeline and his POV kind of forced me to go back to the Alba ones and work on them so that they were more balanced and also felt more, you know, controlled and intentional and well-paced. Okay. So it felt much more in your wheelhouse, treating that more like a sort of creative nonfiction. Mm -hmm. Well, um, I would say Alba's um, perspective was first more like creative nonfiction. Yes. And that was primarily my background as a um, personal right. essayist. And then yes, it was Lu Fang's sections that forced me to, step in his shoes of a fiction writer. Um, and, and, you know, now I feel, I feel so much better equipped to start a second novel and think about scenes and dialogues and all these story mechanics. Uh, but mm. so much of it, I was really just learning on the fly <laughs> during the process yeah. of drafting and revising the first book. Yeah. That's so interesting. So did you, so it sounds like you actually wrote, you essentially wrote both um, point of views as sort of separate things in their own entirety 
and then did you figure out where you wanted to move between them in the kind of final novel? It was it was a really really um, thought provoking process because thankfully I had all the sections and her timeline already more or less mapped out when when I was writing Lu Fang's. But the the whole point of having the multiple timelines was to bring out this dramatic irony and juxtaposition of how much the characters don't know about each other or you know what is unknowable. Um, about each of their private lives to the other. So I was thinking very deliberately about, you know, maybe you just you just found out about something major um, happening in Alva's life at the end of her section. And then there's a there's a handoff and we go back to, you know, a particular era of Lu Fang's life where maybe something that's either highly relevant or pertinent on a plot level happens, or maybe sometimes in more subtle ways, maybe he's in a parallel situation where he's had to make a moral choice that will be very reminiscent to the reader. Um, as you know, what's it just right this Alba and you kind of see the juxtaposition of how the two characters acted in those different sections. Um, and of course it's very intentional that they're, you know, structured right next to each other. So I was constantly thinking about this question of dramatic irony, juxtaposition, how one section can fill in a gap that I've just opened in a previous section um, and play play with that knowledge. Okay. Okay. So it, it actually worked out kind of well where Alva's storyline served as a sort of really good kind of checkpoint marker system for when you were writing Lu Fang's. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I was, you know, if you open my notebooks at the time, I definitely was even kind of graphing it out. Like if, um, <laughs> If we, uh, because if if we had just reached some kind of emotional high in an alpha section or, or some kind of a, a climax, and the next Lufang section is I don't know about him buying milk or too quiet, that that contrast, you know, might not. It's nice to have some contrast, but the the emotional kind of frequency might be totally off yeah. the mark. So I also wanted to be careful that as as kind of the emotions ramp up or major things happen in one section, and then we have a POV switch, um, the kind of emotional frequency or intensity of the next section should kind of still be in conversation with what happened in the other. Um, and then conversely, some other times, it might be exactly the right time to kind of let the, let the emotions fall and have this kind of relief or breathing room for the reader. So... Yes, it was um, it, it was kind of a, a, a challenging process craft-wise, but also a really fun puzzle to figure out. Yes, like you said, I'm sure for whatever you write next, the amount of learnings that you've taken just from that process and kind of figuring out as you went must be must be immense. So you, you're kind of very well prepared for whatever you do do next. I hope so. <laughs> Although I will <laughs> say, I will say that was novel number two, um, which I've okay. been thinking about for, for a year and a half, but have only written a few chapters. The reason why my progress was so slow was because I was committed to avoiding all mistakes I made in <laughs> novel number one. I was like, ah, oh, I, uh, I was having so much trouble with pacing and plotting and I am going to have everything planned and plotted for novel number two before I even write a single word on the page. And that will help me avoid, you know, all these problems. And then I just wasn't writing for a whole year. I was, 
thinking, 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 but at some point that became stale. And, and I, I just had to tell myself, you know what, even if you, you have some idea of the plot, you can control all the variables, writing as a process and an adventure, you just have to make yourself dive in. You can't, yeah. you can't literally carry all the lessons of, of, you know, book one, um, into book two and, and just, you know, at some point they become actual obstacles or, or mental blocks for writing instead of, of helpful tools. One lesson that you sort of have to take from the first book is that you, in the end, created a complete whole kind of book that was, you know, really, really great. So like as difficult as that process might have been, you got there in the end. Whereas if you try and do something sort of very different, take a very different approach, that's that's new uncharted territory for you. You're going to have to learn new lessons to, to do mm-hmm. it that way. Yeah, exactly. Every every book is a different being, mm-hmm. um, a different puzzle. And I think as a writer, it's control can be a very <laughs> kind of difficult um, and complicated relationship that we have with our own work. And there's this urge to kind of maximize efficiency by maximizing control and then sometimes letting go of it and just saying, okay, this is some, you know, subconscious terrain or evolving material that you just need to really push control over and let yourself, you know, explore a little bit and, and alchemize the way, you know, things, things might evolve over the years. It's, it's kind of a beautiful process in hindsight, <laughs> but when yeah. you're, when you're, you know, living it, it can feel like utter <laughs> torture sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very true. So, um, this is your debut novel, but you have co-authored and translated, um, is it two other books on politics and economics in China? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. And those were, um, I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit cheapish to say they were both books I worked on when I was okay. way in my early 20s. Um, back when I had just graduated from university, I actually studied political science mm-hmm. um, when, when I was a university student. And I was quite committed to having a career in foreign policy. My, my dream uh, at the time was, you know, to become um, an embassy worker and, and live around the world. And I guess you can see a parallel in terms of some degree of uh, internationalism or, or, you know, wanting to work in a, a cultural space. But I um, worked for one year at a think tank in Washington, D.C. right after graduating. And it was it was a really exciting place to be. But I was surrounded by other young people and researchers who were so passionate about statistics and running regressions and Excel spreadsheets. (laughs) And I was like, "Uh oh, I I am not at all passionate about this. And and it's something I'm interested in. But actually, I saw that you really... um, as a young person, you get to have a deep love and, and high tolerance for something to be, mm-hmm. you know, committing to a professional path in it. And that's when I was like, oh, I think, you know, foreign affairs is, is my interest, but not really um, my passion. And so I saved up my salary from that year, I saved up as much as possible, and I began traveling and freelancing um, in the year afterwards. And so... That's when I worked on translating the book uh, on Chinese economics from Chinese to French um, and picking up various other freelance or editorial gigs 
And, and slowly that way over the years, I carved out uh, some kind of a uh, multi-pronged living as a writer and editor, um, which brought me to where I am today, which um, is, is a, a space where I've worked. I like to say I work only with words, whether as an editor or, or a writer, and I feel really lucky to be able to do that. Okay, that's really interesting. I didn't realize that was the... The, the the ghost part of it, I didn't realize that was something that you, you were doing, but it's it's really cool to know that you can make that work and you can do that kind of freelance stuff and 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 make enough money from doing those sorts of projects. I was moving around a lot uh, between Europe and Asia, always you know trying to find living situations that made sense for my level mm-hmm. of income that year. Uh, but you know, even hearing myself talk now, I'm thinking, wow, that's something at 21 or 22, I had, you know, more, more aptitude for, um, and now at 30, it, it actually sounds nice to have some more stability and creature <laughs> comforts, but yeah. I'm glad that my younger self took that leap and took those risks. Yeah, you did it. You, you ticked it off the list. Done. Don't have to do that again. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully, hopefully. So now that you have published both fiction and non-fiction, do you have a preference? Do you know which one you would rather kind of pursue in the future? Yeah, it's um, it's really interesting. I think for me, it depends on length or scope. Uh, for long, long-form books, when I think of my next book, I, I think it's definitely going to be a novel. Um, and, and I'm not really sure why. I guess unless at some point in my life I stumble into a topic that's you know rich enough for me to do a work of hybrid reportage or um, write a memoir about it, um, maybe I'll, I'll do a book once nonfiction. But right now it feels like for book once work, fiction is the answer. But in terms of short form, I'm not a short story writer. I think they are the most challenging. Um, forms of, of creative mm. writing that exists out there. And when I'm writing something shorter, I really delight in the essay form. It's one of my um, old times favorite. And and the magazine I work for um, that you mentioned, Off Assignment, it's dedicated to personal stories and place writing. Um, and it's all short form personal essays. So that's also what I primarily edit. And it's kind of what I live and breathe um okay as an editor so yeah i don't um i don't know what to make of it but i think kind of lens and form kind of dictates the preference for fiction versus nonfiction, at least in my writing life right okay so and a lot of it will be if there's like a topic that piques your interest mm-hmm. yeah or um i mean i'm trying to to branch out and become an essayist and a nonfiction writer who <laughs> writes about more than myself and my own lived experiences i'm I'm starting to get quite (laughs) sick of those (laughs) and kind of have already covered that ground over and over and over again but when i was you know setting out to be a writer and and learning how to become one i think the self was kind of this endless well of material that had been marinating for such a long time and felt like it was so ready to be told and malleable um so so i wrote mostly personal personal essays, uh, about, you know, my personal experiences or, or my fascination with place. I think a a common theme in all of my writing, whether it's essays or, um, the novel or fiction, it's, it's kind of always about the character's relationship to place. 
that's that's I think is always going to be a, a theme in my work. Right. Okay. Something for you to talk about with your therapist, probably. Yes. <laughs> I thought that's what this was. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um amazing that's um that's so interesting it's so interesting to hear all about your your kind of writing and how you approached it and how you kind of tackled this debut novel um that brings us to what is always the final question of every episode um and that is oh if you were stranded on a desert island with a single book which book do you hope that it would be i would uh bring along roberto bolaño's 2666 which is one of my all-time favorite books that I've only listened to so far. I um, actually first listened to it when I was walking the Camino de Santiago, the long-distance hiking pilgrimage in Spain. And I chose the book because it was almost 40 hours long, which felt like a very good companion for walking a very long walk. Um, but I have to say, it's it has... It's kind of a cult classic. It's very mysterious. It's very, very um, brooding and atmospheric. It feels like it has this kind of strange magnetism to it. And it's a kind of book, I think, that feels like it contains all the mysteries of the universe and all the interconnectedness and randomness of things. Um, I don't know if you've read it, but yeah, if you come to it different times at different stages of your life, it will reveal different secrets. It's also really long so it's it's a brick in physical form which i think would be really great for you know whacking the head of wild animals or potential attackers okay. and, and pirate ghosts <laughs> on this desert island i'm stranded on so <laughs> i'm a pragmatic woman as well yeah, yeah always good to have a heavy weapon with you when you're, when you're <laughs> exactly. on a desert island <laughs> exactly that's a great answer i, I love that um your description kind of makes me think of uh, The Alchemist, that kind of similar mm-hmm. sort of energy to it, although that's a very short book. So yours is probably a better, a better bet. <laughs> yes. Aren't, aren't those books wonderful? The ones that you, you feel like contain, contain an endless, bottomless well of mysteries, even though mm-hmm. they're, you know, they're, they're, they're this, in some ways they don't evolve. There's the same, they're always going to be the same arrangement of letters printed on paper, but it's, it's you in some ways who's also yeah. the endless well. Um, so I, I love books like that. No, that's so true. That's so true. Well, thank you so much, Obe, for coming on the podcast and telling us all about um, River East, River West and, and kind of everything that, that's gone into that and, and what you're sort of doing uh, in the future and how, how you kind of uh, are tackling the whole publishing industry. It's been awesome chatting with you. Yes, thank you so much for having me. It's been such a lovely conversation. It has. And for anyone wanting to keep up with what Obe is doing, you can follow her on Twitter at Obrelescure or on Instagram at Obnoisette. Um, you can also find her on the website www.obrelescure.com. And to make sure you don't miss an episode of this podcast, follow along on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok and Facebook. You can support the show on Patreon and for more bookish chat, check out my other podcast, The Chosen Ones and Other Tropes. Thanks again to Obe and thanks to everyone listening. We'll catch you in the next episode. <laughs>